We're actually positioning ourselves as a company that loves taste. Gotta try as much as possible to make it predominantly locally sourced. It's the future where we can coexist. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sommer Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for the second renaissance. Today I speak with Jan Pakas, founder and CEO of alternative protein producer All G Foods. Jan previously co-founded the ASX-listed pet care services marketplace Madpaws and HR software company Flair. Jan is a serial entrepreneur who speaks six different languages and has global industry experience across digital technology, consumer and financial services. He's won many awards, amongst others CEO of the Year by the Australian HR Institute, and he is a five-time winner of the Best Employer in Australia Award by Aon Hewitt. He's an alumnus from the Stanford University Graduate School of Business and the University of Sydney Business School, where we studied together. In this episode, we discuss why lab-grown proteins are on the rise, the future of the meat industry, regenerative farming, and the importance of purpose-led entrepreneurship. I loved hearing about the work my good friend Jan has been doing, and I'm sure you will too. Welcome to the second renaissance, Jan Pakas. And it's Soma Nilsson. So glad to be here. Now we're going to talk about waves of change on the second <laughs> renaissance. And uh, uh, part of the story is, of course, that Jan and I, we did our executive MBAs together at the University of Sydney and then around the world. You were then the managing director for Hilti Australia, which is a power tool company from Liechtenstein originally. Uh, and uh, you're a bit of a polymath. <laughs> I want to just tune into because you're presently invited today as the founder of All G or All Goods, All Good Foods, and uh, which is, of course, a alternative protein company. How does one make the journey from being the MD of Hilti Australia to, uh, to driving what is a very important innovation in the world of sustainability? No, thanks, Anders. Uh, I think we all go through uh, life changes. And uh, I, for myself, realized, and I guess an MBA is always a vehicle to make you realize what you're passionate about and where you want to spend the next decades of your life. And for me, I realized it's not corporate life. I want to create impact through creating things. And so OLG, in fact, is the third company that I've co-founded. The first one is a company that's now listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. It's the largest marketplace for pet services in Asia-Pac. It's a company called Madpost, which we started, as you might know, from a garage from nothing. And uh, now it's a, a publicly traded company. Second one was a fintech you know, we're again from nothing. It's now uh, valued in uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars where there's Vestpec, second largest Australian bank, and KKR, the biggest investors. And uh, I've done well in both those, uh, got lucky in both those businesses and, and said, hey, what am I really passionate about in terms of where I can merge my passions with the impact on the world? And it's, it is alternative protein. It is uh, food is our topic in relation to climate change. It, uh, it, divide, it has the potential to divide or unite opinions. Every 30 to 35 years, the planet doubles its demand on food. And uh, the, the simple thesis is, you know, uh, we were able to do that in the last 100 years by simply doubling cows and pigs and animals as a core food supply. But that is changing and, and we're part of that movement and we're one of the companies driving those change in a positive way. Mm. Because they fart too much, for example, and <laughs> consume too many planetary resources. Not only, yes, but uh, look, they need uh, land, they need water, they create CO2 uh, uh, emissions 
And if you think about the scale of, uh, like the numbers are mind-blowing, it's billions and billions of animals that are used for animal farming. It's, uh, you know, there's different statistics that 25 to 30% of CO2 emissions globally is driven by animal agriculture. 50% of the habitable land mass is used up by animal agriculture. And if you just project it, how that could look like in 30, 40 years, I think it's, it's pretty clear that there must be a different additional solution to to simply offer a solution for the increased demand. Mm. And so ironically, just as you were arriving here at our Avalon studio, I thought, oh, you know, I've got a couple of minutes to to dash across the road to pick up my dinner for tonight. And I am still an occasional omnivore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my wife was like, oh, we've got you know roast veggies for dinner. Maybe pick up some sausages before you uh, launch into your next podcast recording. So I went to the butcher, great Danish butcher, um, regenerative farming, grass-fed, etc. But I still feel like a bit of an environmental bandit nonetheless. And then, of course, there's the you know humanitarian, animal husbandry side of things that people have concerns about. And then I was like, I should have just you know prayed and hoped. Uh, <laughs> no advertisement, of course. But you know these alternative proteins, I'm starting to be in a position where I'm actually, from a taste perspective, not noticing the difference. It started with you know me having you know, a plant-based or alternative protein burger in the United States some years ago. And I was like, this is really good. And it's getting better. And it's getting better. And you guys are driving that from a scientific, plant-based perspective. Tell us a little bit more about some of the science behind sure. behind the technology. Look, I think from a consumer perspective, that I think we got to, not only us, but, uh, you know, the, the alternative protein industry, and, and let's specify alternative protein, we consider this alternative meat and dairy solutions, right? Uh, where, and we can speak about the technologies behind it. It's, it's today only approximately 1% to 1.5% market share of the traditional animal protein. So it's very, very small. Despite, you know, lots of brands kind of popping up, it's still like e-commerce in the early 2000s. And what will drive the change to what is e-commerce 10 to 15 years later I think it's three things. I think it's first one, product quality still has to improve. Our vision, and we're not that far away, is you will not be able to tell the difference. Mm. You will not be able to tell the difference. You know, it's, it's, and we, in fact, we did today a, a, a random test with consumers, real meat, our meat. It was very, very random. You know, there wasn't a clear correlation. So, so product quality has to go up continuously and has to continue to, to be improved across all different applications, not only burgers, mince, but also chicken breast you know, uh, pork, which is a big part of Asian consumption, steaks and milk, cheese, there's still no great cheese alternatives. We're addressing that. Mm. So product quality is one. Uh, Price points. Currently still, the alternative solutions are more expensive, which is normal. You know, before you build out an industry, it's like in electric cars, it costs more money. So until it reaches a bigger scale point, you know, it's still a bit more expensive. So typically the consumers that buy it are from higher socioeconomic uh, circles or, or segments. Mm-hmm. So price point has to reach parity. And in fact, we're convinced it'll go below medium term, the price of meat and dairy. And third one is availability. Mm-hmm. You should be going to the butcher, not to a plant-based or, or specialized aisle, and you pick up those or others mm-hmm. at the butcher because the butcher will be offering animal and animal free. So not dissimilar to, to Burger King or to McDonald's, for example, Absolutely. that are offering these as alternatives. It's all about, you know, we've got to reposition it from a niche. Where, and we don't want to position ourselves as a niche movement, which is very loud about, you know, animal rights and vegan, because, mm-hmm. yes, there's, there's a, say, a very loyal 5% following. But to unlock mass consumers who frankly, don't care about those things. And yeah, it's nice to care for the planet, but at the end of the day, I want to have a burger or a, 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 I want to have my meal that tastes great, won't cost me a bomb, mm. and, and I can pick it up anywhere available. So we got we to gotta solve those three, mm. those three uh, 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 enablers. And I think once we do that, or then it'll, it'll grow to a much, much larger scale. So 
I think back a few years ago in 2017, I, I, I spoke at a conference in Nashville uh, and it was for the Certified Angus Beef Movement. And so Certified Angus Beef, of course, is the, the sort of quality label that then licenses its label to restaurants, to abattoirs, to farms around the world who meet very rigorous um, quality standards and increasingly now environmental standards. And I used the analogy that, and I asked the question back in 2017 of, you know, what is the future of protein and what is the future of beef? Because milk had already shifted the definition. We used to just think of milk when we went into the coffee shop, but it was just moo milk. It was just dairy, right? And it was dairy from a cow. But then, of course, milk changed its definition to being macadamia, to being soy milk, to being almond milk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are you seeing the same sort of awareness that the definition of beef, just like milk, is is evolving? Uh, look, I think firstly, and I'd almost slightly disagree with you that almond milk and soy milk, while yes, I agree they brand themselves as milk, the reality is the product doesn't perform as greatly as traditional cow milk. And, and it doesn't perform as greatly, particularly as a, it simply doesn't have the same mouthfeel. Yes, some people like the taste of almond milk, but it doesn't have the same mouthfeel, which is particularly not applicable, then you can't have a great cheese from it, right? Because what you make out of milk is not only milk, but you make cheese, you make yogurts, and so you can't make a great cheese out of macadamia or almond, almond milk. But the second one is, you know, if you kind of look at protein levels that you find again in soy milk, almond milk, and so on, it's got very, very little protein. So it's, it's yes, it's different than traditional dairy, but it still doesn't solve for the, hey, I want to have something that is nutritionally equal or superior, but is maybe healthier, healthier, and doesn't have the uh, environmental footprint. And how are we solving, and sorry, I'm a little bit misleading, but I want to bring it in. We're actually creating identical milk but without the cow. And how we do that, we take a gene from the cow and we program the gene to, in its simplistic form, to reproduce itself at 10,000 times the speed, put it in the yeast, and, and kind of imagine it at scale, how you're growing beer in a large stainless steel fermentation tank. You know, two days later, you harvest 50,000 liters of beer. We're going to harvest, two days later, identical cow milk entirely from programming the gene that, uh, you know, you don't need to use thousands of cows, thousands of acres of land, water, and, and two years of time to get to the same outcome. We can basically mm-hmm. program the, the gene and, and harvest the milk. And if you look at it from a kind of health perspective, it's, it's, it's better for you because we can take out the lactose, we can program the milk, you know, so that, it, that it's the best to your nutritional values, sustainability device. It's an absolute game changer. And uh, so better for plant, better for you, and over time we'll get to a better price point. So mm-hmm. that is disruptive, right? Because there's zero compromise for the user, zero compromise because it's identical. We measured it, you know, from a molecule, mm. but you take the animal completely out of the out of the system and, and heads don't have those negative consequences. Yeah. And of course, some of these plant-based milks or whatever you choose to call them, uh, yep. sap or whatever else, yep. um, they have to have a lot of sugar added to them to actually perform well. In, and they in use the local 10 person. times more water to produce, you know, a liter of milk. So actually, in order to get to, a, for instance, one liter of almond milk, you use, I think, eight times more than, than the production of traditional milk. So it's yeah. actually even more damaging for the environment. Again, it's, it's some people prefer it for a taste profile and mm. so on, but it's still relatively small. So we believe in order to change dairy mm. we gotta recreate identical dairy just without the animal through a different technology yeah so taste performance has to be great how, how have you guys been performing compared to the competition feel free to name them or otherwise sure. um are you winning are you winning over the you know the the convinced Aussie male barbecue yep. lover are they starting to you yep. know migrate so, look, the, the plant-based meat, which is one technology that we're in that's been around now for a number of years, you know, the, the most famous companies are Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat. In terms of how do we compare against them? In fact, we've done a, a blind 
tasting profile, 100 users, outsources to an agency we've beaten beyond, which is, I think, pretty amazing because they raised much more money, have been around for longer, and, uh, and we were not much worse than Impossible, which is probably the benchmark. And if you then again compare Impossible, Beyond, or Us against Real Meat, it's very, very comparable. You'll have a really hard time to, to find out if it's, if it's kind of Real Meat or not. Mm. But there are other applications like, for instance, a steak, like, for instance, you know, full chicken breast were, were plant-based technologies, not there yet, right? So there's still a lot of catch-up to be done. In terms of uh, animal-free identical dairy, frankly, there's, there's a lot of companies in the space, but they haven't hit market shelves yet because it's still technology projects, very small scale. You know, uh, if, you, if you look at the glass milk that we've done, it's not only that you as a consumer taste it, we actually measured it on a test. It's identical mm-hmm. cow milk, right? So that'll be absolutely unrecognizable. How do we now, but still, how do we then translate it into a consumer proposition and eventually drive consumer change? I'd say it's still a process, mm-hmm. right? And uh, yes, as always, there's early adopters, like, you know, certain age groups, certain kind of, uh, uh, suburbs, of course, it, you'd say in the 20, 30-year-old people in Bondi, they love it and, and they'll be on it. But then you have your example of uh, the very uh, uh, kind of central Australian uh, uh, um, heavy meat eater barbecue lover who, you know, even though he or she might like the product, just the fact that it's plant-based creates a negative reaction. Now, how do we overcome that from a branding perspective, from a how do we make it inviting yet not divisive? I'd say that's still a marketing challenge, mm. right? And, and we are not positioning ourselves as a, that's why I said not as a vegan company, because that divides society. We're actually div- positioning ourselves as a company that loves taste, mm. right? That loves taste, you know, that wants to unify people around the barbecue, whether, it, whether you're flexitarian, vegetarian, or carnivore, mm. and and it's all that matters is taste and have fun, you know, and and that's and and what's the occasion rather than being preachy about you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Well, I mean, I'm just looking down the um, the aisle now, having done our, some of our Christmas and New Year's shopping at uh, Dan Murphy's, which mm-hmm. is our local liquor store here, and making more choices around you know zero alcohol beer which is starting to taste really good mm-hmm. and of course this is one of the two ingredients at an aussie barbecue for example american barbecues whatever it happens to be and so people are already changing their consumption habits and realizing that you know breweries are starting to be able to do really tasty zero alcohol beer that are that's also low carbon it's healthier for you are you seeing that there, you can hit this sort of sweet spot of it's better for your cardiovascular health to eat this, for example, but you're also getting your taste buds, um, making sure that they're happy as well? Look, I think there's, there's kind of two drives at the moment. The one is the macro perspective that the planet needs to double protein supply every 30 to 35 years. So it's simply not possible to double the land, double the cow sense on this. So that's a no-brainer. Mm. There's a lot of kind of climate push, you know, to, to achieve that, but still there's resistance. But then from a consumer perspective, the angle is, I'd say the angle for adoption is, is taste. You must hit a threshold. It's a non-compromise. But then, yes, it is. I think the main market to unlock is not the vegans or vegetarians, but it's the, what we call the meat reducer, the flexitarian meat reducer. Instead of you having meat seven days a week, you have it four days a week. And we give you alternatives where you don't feel a, a compromise on your taste. And in fact, the, the uh, nutritional values in terms of your intake are the same or and healthier for you, mm. better for you because it has more fiber, it has more iron, you know, and same with dairy. So, so if we give you something that is better for you, for the younger generations, the planet matters more and more and is widely available, I think then we're going to see mm. more and more adoption. Uh, personally, I think can't stop it. Question is how quickly. Yeah. Can you stop electric cars as a movement? Like five, seven years ago, traditional car makers were having a laugh because performance wasn't there. Look mm. at it today. Can you change the internet? Again, 10, 15 years ago, it was a niche. 1% look at it today. I think we're in those stages where some of those indices were five years ago. Mm. What What is the, you know, both 
if we zoom out for a moment, what mm -hmm. is the ecological opportunity if the world shifted towards this sort of conscious consumption? And what's the what's the market opportunity in terms of the kind of markets you can capture in terms so of the billions e of dollars? The ecological opportunity is huge, and I, I, it's actually a great question. We're we're wanted to engage a you know one of the fa most famous professors at Stanford University to do exactly that study with us that mm -hmm. we understand what's the size of the price in terms of positive impact for the planet, both from an aggregate perspective, but also then from a hey, single consumption of one meal a day or one meal a week for you as a consumer, right? Want to understand this impact on land, water, CO2. So, but the short answer is it's huge. Mm. It's huge. It's, it's if, if animal agriculture is, is, I think, the second or third largest emitter of CO2 globally, you know, it's, mm. it's clear that it's, the opportunity is huge and the consumption only goes up. What is the opportunity in terms of value creation as a business opportunity for shareholders? Meat is 1.2 trillion US dollar industry globally. Dairy is approximately 800 billion US dollars globally. So it's a two trillion US dollar global industry that is doubling in size every 30 years. Now, I don't think traditional meat and dairy will ever go away, but I do think of the doubling of the double capacity, the sheer majority of the additional capacity will come from alternative protein sources, be it through precision fermentation, plant-based or cell-based meat, which is still yet to come kind of five, 10 years. Mm. In, in today. So talk us through those three different scenarios yeah. and just break it down for our viewers and, and listeners. <laughs> so the, the three main technologies how to, how to uh, solve the incremental demand is plant-based, precision fermentation, and cell-based. Plant-based is what, what most of the consumers would be familiar. That's impossible foods. That's beyond meat. And that's butts as, a, as, a, as the great uh, leading Aussie brand. Mm. And it's, it's proven, it's, I think, uh, it's the closest in terms of price parity. It's the industry is probably two years away from price parity. And I think when you're going to see price parity combined with even better and better product performance, mm. it'll become more and more mainstream. There's still, I think, a branding challenge, you know, how you not make it too anti-meat, mm. which some of the brands are doing beyond meat and impossible. That's what we don't want to position ourselves against. But I think it'll be more and more, you know, and it's growing fast every year, you know, 20% Kager. Mm. So, so it's not that meat's growing 20% Kager, it's maybe kind of stable 1%. So mm. it's, it's all the incremental demand is coming from, from, from those, from this technology. Precision fermentation, which is a technology we are in and where we have core capabilities, is in essence, you know, you recreate any molecule or any molecules that, that, you know, where you create uh, cultured dairy proteins, you can create, uh, you know, proteins that uh, will create a different color change for the plant-based burgers, where you can recreate fat, where you can uh, basically create all those nutritional or functional values of, of plant-based meat or identical dairy that, that basically make it a more real experience. So that's the second, that's the fastest now emerging kind of technology where, where there's a lot of companies moving very fast in the space, a lot of venture capital is flowing into that mm. record. And this sums. is not your traditional sauerkraut fermentation, to no. be clear. No, that's where, again, we program the cell, put it in a yeast, mm. and it, it grows mm. exponentially fast. And, and you know, uh, to demystify it a bit, you know, how how uh, it looks in, in practical terms, you, you, you take the cell, put it in a yeast, you have a kind of small fermentation tank where you put that and it, it turns water into milk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> True alchemist. Yes. Now, the third technology, and, and in precision fermentation, probably from a price parity, we're five years away, mm -hmm. but again, not that far. And game changer in terms of, again, as I said, it's not plant-based milk, it's real milk. Cell-based meat is the real thing that's not plant-based. It's you're really recreating and growing a muscle in, again, in a stainless uh, uh, steel bioreactor. But from a price point, it's the furthest way. It's, it's, if I'm an optimist, I'll say it's 10 years. If I'm a realist or more a pessimist, I'd say it's 20 years away 
from a price parity. Yes, there's been companies who have cre- created small products, you know, like a, a identical steak, but it costs you five hundred dollars, and it's 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 nice for a demo, but it's mm. not something that will you that will hit mass adoption in I'd say certainly not in this decade, right? So it's more a uh, it's technologically viable. It's just it'll take, as I said, a much much longer time mm. until uh, until you make it a mass mass product, and until then, plant based will continue to improve. Will continue to hit a better price point. You know, we'll take a, a bigger market share. So those three technologies can all coexist. In fact, there's a lot of scenarios where plant based by far the biggest now. Still a lot room to grow. Precision fermentation kicking in a lot in mm. the next years. And the kind of cell based uh, as of the 2030s becoming a more a a, a viable business. Mm. So I know from having worked with the beef industry, mm-hmm. with the Australian Food and Grocery Council and <clears throat> traditional incumbents may or may not be challenged, might be fighting you, mm-hmm. might be lobbying that mm-hmm. this yep. is like a Frankenburger or this is all GMO. Like what, what, what kind of resistance are mm-hmm. you coming up against mm-hmm. in terms of yep. just disrupting the traditional industry? And yep. how would you debunk some yep. of the criticisms? Great question. Uh, look, firstly, I always talk about we're not disrupting the industry. We're adding additional supply to an industry that cannot supply it itself. And in fact, you know, we're working now with a dairy company who is very likely to invest. And the first thing is that absolutely love it. We don't have enough cows and we don't know where we're going to get them from. So we see you guys as a great source of additional supply for all the demand that will just massively increase in the next decade. But of course, you know, there's other companies whose view is, oh, you're eating our cake. And you got to ask yourselves, what was the reaction with the fintechs and the banks 10 years ago? What was the reaction with the electric car companies and traditional car companies? And it's like with everything. So I think it's either you uh, embrace that new technology as a great opportunity for you as an incumbent and you get on the train and you see yourselves as a protein company or as a financial services provider or as a car company and you get on that part of new technology or you just fight it and fight it and fight it and then you have a sorry to say, Kodak moment, mm. or, or you have just a, a different moment. The Uber moment. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think, firstly, I think it's, not, it's unstoppable simply because of there's a macro uh, impact where simply there's more and more demand for protein, and there's also a consumer-driven change. Mm. So I think you can't stop it. You can only slow it down. You can only make it more difficult by kind of throwing regulatory hurdles in, which is happening you know, in every market. But look, I think if I kind of take a decade-long view, Mm. that's been the case in every industry. That's been the case in every industry. And, and, you know, the smart, I think the capable and more progressive companies in those industries actually want to partner with us. So we had one Australian very prominent meat company invest a lot of money in us and see us, hey, you know, we actually want to see you. We want to help you to distribute. And I want to make it a core part of our offering because consumers wanted more and more and more. And I couldn't do it until now because the product quality wasn't there. Mm. But now I trust that product will not disappoint. So I want to make it a big part of my business because in fact, I de-risk my business. I diversify my business and I will for more solutions and offers to customers. And the same, you know, there's very innovative dairy companies who say, yeah, absolutely, let's work together. And we actually want to help you to scale up because we have certain assets that you might not have, how you can turn your proteins into end B2C products. Mm. And I think those companies with those mindsets are the winners of the future. But then you have, of course, different companies with a different mindset who will fight it whatever it takes and and just use any opportunity to kind of create a (laughs) viral social campaign uh, Mm -hmm. against you. And I think it's, it's, again, I mean, you've been interviewing lots of... uh, industry uh, uh, changing CEOs, mm. entrepreneurs, and you see how it always ends. You know, very often that kind of PR gets turned against you. And, uh, and uh, look, we, we're not doing anything bad. Mm. We're not, uh, we're, we're providing healthy alternatives that are better for you, that are not depleting the resources of the planet as much in, you know, 
for a very, very fast growing population that'll hit nine or 10 billion. Like how else would you do it? Mm. How else would you do it? GMO, yes. You know, uh, uh, needs to needs to be solved, needs to be addressed. I, perf- I, I personally think the adoption towards, we're not GMO by the way, right? But I think, you know, the more and more countries will adopt GMO as a very normal process because again, you know, there's a lot of GMO in, in every farm. A rennet, for example, as a cheese is GMO and it's been widely adopted, right? So it's again, only a question of time. Uh, is it processed? Yes, it is processed. Do you know how a real meat burger is processed? Do you think there's more steps in a meat burger, in a real meat burger, in a plant-based? What do you guess? I would imagine that, given you've asked the question, that it would be in a meat-based burger. Yeah, it's look. We even kind of were thinking: should we make a video about a comparison about how what's the process here, what's the process here? But we said let's not do it because it will stir up even more discussions where it'll just attract. Although I can imagine, publicity. I can so imagine this from a positive angle. I can imagine this moment where it's the Tesla truck, you know, pulling the the Ram or the Ford up the hill. You know, that's the, you know, the the big fight, the decider. Yeah. So there you go. Maybe there's a PR opportunity <laughs> in, in 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 all of that as well. So if you're looking at analogs or other markets, I mean, the US is probably arguably a few years ahead of us mm-hmm. in terms of adoption and in terms of the technologies, in terms of where where the dollar is is going. What are you seeing? Are the Kroger's of the world or the the, the, the Tyson's of the world, or the, the Cisco's, et cetera, are they getting on board with, with this technology? 100%. All the big meat companies and all the big dairy companies are jumping on the train and and – not all of them, but most of them, and either investing in those companies or creating divisions within themselves or buying companies or partnering with companies. And and we as well have been approached by multiple dairy companies, by multiple multinational food companies, as well as by Australian meat companies to, you know, where they either invest, want to invest in us mm. or they want to partner or they want to jointly develop. And I think that's, that's the future mm. where we can coexist and where we just can jointly develop more innovative products that were at the end of the day the consumer wins yeah so i mean even in traditional agriculture and and broad acre agriculture in terms of animal husbandry there seems to be this groundswell movement now through regenerative farming through you know grass fed um from farm to table digital traceability through to you know, from nose to tail, you know, using the whole animal and, you know, ethical um, meat-based consumption. Um, how does that translate? Or is that, is the sense that, yes, but that's not enough to feed? That's what I'd say. It is great. I love that, mm. right? That you have, a, uh, that ideally everything gets sourced locally within your kind of mini radius of 50 kilometers. Mm-hmm. But look, the reality is with a growing population who has is spoiled for choice, look into the supermarket, you find how many cheese options from how many countries. That's the society we live in. So I think it's very hard to uh, convince the consumer that uh, the only thing you're gonna we're gonna give you is what's been grown in that kind of 15 kilometer radius, right? So I think this is great, but I have question marks: Is it enough for a growing population planet with some high, high dense populations? You know, in China, India, Asia, Africa, where you might not have the climate mm. to cater for all your needs. So I think that's great mm. because it's it's good for the planet, it's good for you, it's good for uh, all the value chain, but we're speaking, I don't know, five, ten percent. We're not speaking it's it won't be the big mass. Yeah. It kind of triggers this thought that in two thousand and twelve I was speaking at a another agricultural conference <laughs> uh in Las Vegas and attached to the beef industry was for feedlot owners and managers in the United States. And one of the things I always ask our clients is, are there any no-go areas that are either, you know, legally charged or that just, you know, from a messaging perspective don't work? And the client said, please don't mention the O word. What's and, the O word? And the O word in their parlance mm-hmm. was organic. Mm-hmm. 
and this is sort of early days mm -hmm. of the organic mm -hmm. movement mm -hmm. before you know mm -hmm. uh, farm to table really sort of took off in a massive way um and before locavorism and and, and all, all the rest really kind of again went uh mainstream and they had a lobbyist that the industry employed mm -hmm. who made a very convincing argument to everybody in the room some people were more conscious capitalists other people were less conscious capitalists and um, she basically made the argument and showed it with very fancy graphs etc that organic was totally unsustainable and will never feed the planet have you got any thoughts on that in terms of resource basically she was saying you know organic cows live for longer so they you know they fart for longer you know they need more resources to produce the same pounds of meat etc mm. um and so it was a really interesting one i mean lobbyists are always fascinating yep. in terms of how they might skew yeah, I think and frame it's, I think reality it's, but... look i think it's a false thinking to assume all those ex extreme scenarios right like uh, is the planet and the economy ready if we switched off oil tomorrow and went to 100% clean energy electric cars absolutely not because you'd have so much so many shockwaves in the system and unemployment and you know bankruptcies and so on so it's all a gradual process and and you know painting those extreme scenarios you know kind of <laughs> verifies the hypothesis or proves the hypothesis whatever you want to prove right but but i think it's I think the question is more, this is where we're today. This is what the planet needs in the next 10, 20, 30 years. How do we want to achieve that? What is the source of technologies and food supply in our case? And, and where's the main incremental delta coming from in, in a most sustainable way? And, and yes, organic will have a part, you know, but, but I, I think, again, my conclusion is you will not, we will not be able to get there through traditional mainstream animal agriculture because we just cannot double uh you know classic at scale mm. animal farming like have you seen those pictures and how much land and like it's 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 just not mm. it's it's not like yeah maybe another few more years but take a 30-year view it's 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 not possible it is possible that an extreme consequence and an extreme cost yeah I mean, at the top end of the market too, there, there's a you know another thing I've come across in our work in in, in big agriculture and, and and certainly with the work we've been doing with certified Angus beef um, that do take a very serious approach to to animal husbandry and there's a saying in the beef industry that you know nobody celebrates with a good piece of chicken and I, the point being for a special occasion you go out to a restaurant and if you want to celebrate something really beautiful. Like you're probably not going to order the chicken, <laughs> all right? Sorry to all the people in in that industry. Um, so the analog here is that you know beef has a certain sense of sort of luxury sure. and premiumness, yeah. and you know USDA organic or whatever it happens to be or Wagyu. There's a sort of a provenance story to it, and that provenance story, you know, whether it's you know, we drink champagne and it's only I from agree. champagne. I agree. Or it's Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese and it's from a geographic region and it has this sort of sense of luxury to yep. it. How do you recreate that when it's maybe locally sourced from your local lab in a sense? No, no. So, look, I, I absolutely agree that, that, that locally sourced, in our case, veggie beef in Australia might be a very high-end luxury product in a kind of decade of you that's how it'll be seen in terms of us producing plant-based we got to take a very and we are taking a very similar route where the ingredients that we put into plant-based meat have to be should be will be primarily 95 99 percent from locally country grown uh, uh soil or 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 or, or seeds or, or simply uh, uh, plant-based ingredients, mm -hmm. right? You can't be that you are importing this from China, this from Brazil, and this from the US, because then, yeah, it is the case maybe in the early days or early years of an industry because you don't have sufficient capacity build out, but you clearly, the dairy or, or meat industry is primarily a local industry where 
yes, there's exports happening, but but the sheer majority is for local consumption, mm. right? Or the food industry. And that's exactly the same view that you've got to take in plant-based or precision fermentation where the sheer majority is produced locally, grown from local soil, yeah. you know, uh, mixed with local water yeah. and so on, because then it's economically viable. If you start shipping, mm. you know, heavy, bulky stuff from the US to Australia yeah, and to yeah. Europe and so on, it's just, and it ha- but it still happens, right? It's, 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 it's fun fact, you know, 90% of the bacon that you buy on Australian supermarkets is not from Australia, right? So it's, again, you have unique niche product application, but it's not the case. But, but I think, again, to, to make food more sustainable, yes, you tr- you, we've got to try as much as possible to make it predominantly locally sourced. Mm. And I guess the hyper-local option in the future might also be not just in broadacre horizontal farming, but also increasingly in vertical farming, which we might come back to in just a second. But I, I can imagine, you know, when I look at this and I go, in the future, that if this was the meat variant and that was grown in a lab and I knew that the genetic code of this was that you guys had paid a license fee to somebody in Japan to get part of the genetic code for Wagyu into that. I'd be going, yeah, that sounds, you know, even better than maybe the the Tassie option or whatever it happens to be. And then if you grow it locally here in Australia, even better because it keeps, you know, carbon emissions lower. But, you know, you might actually see a whole new you know, ball game of intellectual property and people charging for genetic sequencing? Uh, yes and no, right? Like, Am honestly, I getting too I'm, futuristic no, on you? you maybe <laughs> a little bit. Look, the, the, the generally, you want to make the, the libraries of genetic sequencing widely available to anyone as mm. possible so that you can basically experiment and recreate the different proteins and so on. It's, it's like an analogy, and I don't want to freak users out here. It's like a widely available kind of open source mm. uh, software code. And then it's up to you how you kind of mix it up and what you use uh, and, and, and how you create an end product. But yes, it is still futuristic, right? Like mm-hmm. plant-based, this is not how you grow plant-based. This is, yes, how you grow then cell-based meat or precision fermentation in terms of mm-hmm. recreating recombinant proteins. But plant-based is, is literally an ingredient play where you mix preferably local ingredients with unique flavors in a unique extruded way and recreate meat. I'm thinking the the fermentation story is mm-hmm. one that uh, would uh, probably appeal to a number of conscious consumers in in Byron Bay and you know these um, very enlightened areas around <laughs> around the world. Uh, I mean, we we grow kombucha at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to claim that it's a precision mm-hmm. fermentation, but it grows really well and produces a really nice yep. kombucha. Once the mother, of course, grows to a certain size, we have to you know, energetically pass that on to somebody else. We have passed it on to uh, Luke and his family, for example, our videographer here today. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure how it's doing at the moment, but, um, you know, and and there's sort of a spirit of giving here that, you know, we actually cut part of the mother because we know it was going to regrow and it just like it feeds on whatever is in our kombucha mix. I think that story of the sort of, you know, precision fermentation is, is, is a really interesting one, even if it happens in a lab and not in a, you know, in a vat or an urn in someone's kitchen, right? It, this is what's scalable about it and it's exponential. Yeah, look, it's, it's I mean, the, the futuristic scenario of a uh, report written by a lot of smart people, Rethink X, recommend to read it if you, if you can, it's widely available on the internet, is that... Uh, you know, the future of precision fermentation is you can basically have a fermentation tank on anyone's roof and you make it completely weather independent, climate independent, you know, day, night, seasons independent, you know, uh, you literally, you put the programmed cells into the fermentation tank and you, you then harvest milk, dairy proteins, whatever, whatever. Right now, I still think there's a, we're a few years away from that. But that is the future, right? That that you can then recreate the food you need in in every environment. Now, still to to get there in a in such a way with the technology in with a price point that is attractive to you, right? Because don't forget you're competing against the one liter, two dollar milk price point that you see. It'll take a bit of time, right? And the 
Hence, in the early days, you got to pr mass produce it in much, much larger fermentation tanks because this is how you have much more scale to hit those price points. But yes, I, I'd still say, you know, what you have described is, is possible in a kind of decade-plus term view. Mm. Yeah, phenomenal. And how's, um, how have the major grocers and, you know, distribution networks in Australia adopted this? I know you're an IGA yep. already with Buds. We're an IGA, you know, 400 retail stores, close to 1,000 restaurants, soon to be ranged in one of the two majors. Can't disclose yet, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, look, they're adopting it very, very fast. And in fact, it's a big priority for them because they, of course, see the growth of the category. And four years ago, it almost didn't exist. Today, it's still a niche, but it's grown 40, 50% year on year. And you won't have, you don't have grocery categories growing 40, 50% at, 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 mm. at year on year, right? So, so of course, if you take a five-year view, it'll be much, much more bigger, right? So they see it as a great business opportunity. Mm. Now, they got to manage the tension between their suppliers, right? Because of course, the meat and the dairy supplies are why is my category not growing? And their answer is, we're here for the consumer. We're giving the consumer what the consumer wants, right? So again, it's a very consumer-driven uh, demand to make that category bigger. Mm. So I will go down, not just to my butcher to tell them that they should be stocking this, but Thank also, you. of course, to my local Woolies here down please the do, road. And, please do, uh, yes. <laughs> have, a, have, have a chat to them. I mean, I think this is one of the fascinating things, and we're nearly into the sort of final innings here. Mm. Uh, to use an Aussie or Anglo-Saxon uh, Anglo terminology of cricket, um, which is, of course, a great opportunity where we have Aussie barbecues, right? So um, my thought here is, you know, conscious consumption has taken off and been accelerated through this portal into the future, which has mm -hmm. been the pandemic. You know, technology is accelerated. We've adopted new technologies. You know, we're launching podcasts. We're streaming to the world, whatever it happens to be. But the stats show us that the consumer is becoming much more conscious in their decisions, even happy to pay a premium for yes. sustainable products. Do you see that? And what, what's your hope in terms of what percentage of the market that you think is viable for your products in the next three to five years? I think in 20 years, 100% in market, right? Because the, there's a generation change. There's a, there's a different mindset change. Look, in fact, if you look at what are the two, three biggest topics there's been a i read somewhere about what will decide the next year's australian election housing affordable is one unsurprisingly but climate change is is one of the top two or three topics right so people it's not a kind of hey this doesn't concern me topic it's becoming more and more real and i think again as i said before particularly the younger generation you know who of course you know have access free access to 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 education at scale which people 20 years ago didn't have you know just making their mind up based on conclusions and different opinions and that's driving the change i think you mm. can't stop it i think it's a you know that's why i say it's a it's a consumer driven trend now now again this is where the art is how can we make it a non-divisive topic how can we make it more a united topic or in an ideal world you have two or three generations of family all enjoying Bud's Burgers mm. for an Aussie barbecue, not arguing about, well, this is not real meat because I, this is my opinion and so on and so on. That's, I think, again, a marketing challenge, mm. you know, but, but I think we'll get there, right? Because products are becoming better, you know, as, as there's more and more positive reviews, I think people are more open to it. There's, this is always like with every category, there's been a lot of skepticism for the first electric cars, simply because I also say they were not good enough. Mm. It wasn't a, Engines didn't perform, the batteries didn't last, it didn't look beautiful, it wasn't, you didn't have the network of the chargers available. So it was always a very, very niche. And I think once you really solve for those pain points, you make it tastier, uh, you, you, you're not being kind of seen as a preachy or an extreme uh, consumer and you make it affordable and available, mm. I think adoption will come much, much faster. So there's an interesting point there around the family and the you know the breaking of bread and 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 sharing a meal together. And I remember bringing home at one point in time, quite a few years ago, a uh, an ex girlfriend of mine who who at the time was vegetarian, and my parents 
felt extremely judged. They felt like it was like she was high maintenance, that she was judging their consumption choices. And they go, you know, in our day, we were just grateful to have food on the table. You know, we didn't ask whether it was organic. We didn't ask where it came from. You know, if our bellies were full, that was, you know, what was respectful. If you, you know, burped after a meal, maybe that wasn't so respectful in that culture. But, you know, like it was, it was this appreciation that when you finished your meal, you know, that was respect to the host. Mm -hmm. I feel like multi-generationally, we're at this sort of tipping point where you yep. realize that if you have a vegan over or a vegetarian over or whatever, everyone's kind of like omnivores. But with the new technologies now, we all have choice and it can be inclusive as opposed to being divisive. Yeah. Correct. 100% agree. And yeah. look, it's again, consumers are spoiled for choice. Your parents might have had <laughs> this opinion, but will you have such an opinion once your uh, uh, <laughs> son comes mm. up with a, a, a girlfriend and, and she will be vegan or she'll be whatever? I think you'll be much more tolerant, right? So I think it's again, as we evolve as a society, and I think the art is how do we bring our parents on the journey, you know, uh, where they don't feel pushed, but actually feel, feel it as a, hey, it's a good thing because everybody's winning. Mm. Well, thank you for lending such an uh, abundant lens to the future of food and uh, hopefully the, the types of proteins and energies that will power our creativity in what we term the Second Renaissance, which is, of course, a flourishing of human creativity and entrepreneurship driven by and enabled by technology. So great to have you on the show, Jan Parkes. Ennis, thanks so much. Loved uh, speaking to you. And uh, thank you, dear audience, uh, for listening to us. Have a great day, morning or evening, wherever you are. Thank you. And make sure you pick up <laughs> one of these as well at your local IGA and elsewhere, no doubt, very soon. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Thanks, Jan, for your foresight and your insight into the power of technology and how it can transform how we consume food while doing our bit for our planetary future. We look forward to seeing you leading more breakthroughs in this field. Next, we speak with high-octane entrepreneur Creel Price from Investable on how the three Ps of planet, people and profit coexist and augment each other, why entrepreneurs have a crucial role to play in fixing the climate crisis, green tech, and what the role of regenerative capitalism is in the economic recovery from the pandemic. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersomanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.